Well, it's good to see all of you today. Thanks for coming. We're in verse 11 of chapter 19. Um, Fred, correctly, uh, in the email reminding us of the meeting, used the phrase spiritual warfare. And um, that's really not a bad way to look at this paragraph. Um, I guess, let me, in, in preparation for studying this together, let me think with you a little bit about a couple of things. <clears throat> Satan is called in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, the God of this age. Jesus uh, refers to him as the, 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 the prince of the power of, of the air. Uh, he's referred to as the head of the kingdom of darkness. Um, he is regarded as the, um, uh, the prince over this world. Why would all of those references be so, I mean, really almost frightening when it refers to Satan. It's almost like when it comes to planet Earth, he's more powerful than God. Is that the right conclusion? Of course not. But what do all those, what do all those phrases, what do all those phrases mean about Satan and his relationship to planet Earth? Do you understand my question? That he's active. Active. How would he have any power on planet Earth? Because he has power over our flesh. He has power over our flesh, over our being. How did he get that power? When, where, and under what circumstances? What were the consequences? (laughs) We have to go back further than when the serpent tempted. Okay, Genesis 3, when the serpent successfully... He had a free choice of Adam. Yeah, yeah, okay. So because of what happened, and the references here are to Genesis 3, because of what happened in that chapter, what did the human race do there? Rejoined the rebellion against God. Satan rebelled against God. Now... um, There are two passages of Scripture that are always helpful when you think about Satan. Ezekiel 28, verses 12 and following, and Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 and following. This passage is a description of Satan uh, before uh, his rebellion, and I, I don't know how else to put that, so I'll just put it that way. Before his rebellion against God, uh, he was an incredible being, beautiful, powerful, uh, with great authority. He was apparently, and I, I'm not sure, I, I'm drawing an inference here, but I think it's fairly legitimate. It's almost like he was, the, he was at the right hand of God serving him as a created angelic being. And Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, is talking about the king of Babylon, but the power behind the king of, who is that? I don't recognize that. <laughs> well, when somebody introduced him to me, whatever. Uh, and at the back of that power, the king of Babylon, is Satan. And it speaks of him rebelling against God. And the key, there are many things to look at there, but the series of I will statements in this passage. And the most important one is when he says, I will be like the most high. Okay? And so what you see there is the combination. Here is his power and beauty and, and incredible power. Here's his fall. He chooses to rebel against God. And in his rebellion against God, the, the, the next, we do not know when this happens. The, the Bible does not put this on a timeline for us. But we know at least this, it occurred before Genesis 3. Right? So whenever it occurred, it occurred before that. Because in Genesis 3, he shows up as the serpent. And Revelation 12, verse 9 tells us the serpent of old is Satan. So what's Satan doing there? The fundamental question of chapter 3 is, is Satan going to be able to deceive the image bearers of God and get them to join what? His rebellion against God. 
Is he successful? Yes, he is. And that's the, Genesis, and I I know you would arguably, the the saddest chapter in the Bible is Genesis 3. I mean, it's just, you you just can hardly believe it. But Jim, in the context of power, he has no more power over us than we we would allow him to have. Once you trust Christ. Yeah, and once we are in Christ, we we have an answer for him. No. That's right, absolutely, absolutely. And perhaps one of the best ones is just like Christ did to quote the scriptures mm-hmm. and uh, <coughs> discerning about it. That's right. But the background, and it's, it's always important to do this, um, to, when you come to a passage like this, because there is there is definite spiritual warfare going on here. It's the power of God against the power of Satan and these individuals that are involved in it. Uh, we'll talk about in a minute. Now, there's one other thing I, I want to I want to just probe a little bit with you. <clears throat> when Jesus came in his incarnation and you know, what we celebrate in Christmas and all that, uh, when Jesus came, what was he doing? Now, that's almost a silly question, but it isn't a silly question. What is he really doing? He's bringing, bringing the, the gift of salvation that God promised to Abraham. Okay. And, I mean, that's, that's a, a great answer. It's the absolute correct thing. But in light of what we're talking about here, I want you to think about it from a different level. What's that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, he took on flesh. Yeah. To begin to restore the order that was in the garden. Okay, okay. He's, another way of putting it is he's taking back planet Earth. Because Satan, listen, Satan, the prince of power of the earth, the god of states, Satan, now, now, now I'm saying this from the perspective of the rebellion, Satan owns Earth. Now I don't mean, I mean God's sovereign, but it owns Earth in the sense that Evil is in his grip here on this planet. Satan is the ruler of this planet. The kingdom of darkness is the kingdom of this planet. What's part of the Lord's Prayer? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you understand the significance of that part of the Lord's Prayer? Because this planet is in rebellion against God. This planet is not submitting to the kingdom of God. Jesus comes to take back the planet. And I mean, in fulfillment, as, as uh, Fred correctly said, of the covenant promises and all that, but he's taking back the planet. But to take back the planet, he has to pay the penalty for the rebellion, which is death. He, he must suffer the penalty for the rebellion against God. And so that's, I mean, that's it's just another way of thinking about this. And so when Jesus shows up, you see all kinds of spiritual warfare. You see the demonic incidents of people, you know, being healed and demons being cast out. Uh, and so one of my favorites is when Jesus uh, casts out the, the demons who are inhabiting a, a, a herd of swine on the east side of the Jordan River. Excuse, uh, the Sea of Galilee, and um, in that, uh, they say to him, why have you come, O son of man, before the time? What time? Before the final judgment. What, why are you here? I mean, they reckon, they know who he is, they know their destiny, and so it's like, it's just a remarkable question they ask Jesus. And it just gives you a little sense, too, of just the utter unbelievable, unimaginable evil there is in Satan and his minions. Can Satan read the Bible? Yes, he quotes from it when he's tempting Jesus. So does Satan, can Satan read Revelation 20, which talks about his end, that he's going to be cast into the lake of fire? Of course, he knows his end, he knows his destiny. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking just humanly speaking. If I knew all that, I'd give up. I'd say, okay, I surrender but he doesn't. I think his primary goal now, now that crosses, 
Jesus has been completed, his death, burial, and resurrection is over. He knows he's defeated. So now his goal is to hurt God by taking as many image bearers with him to hell as he possibly can. That's how evil he is. And it's a, to me, it's an unimaginable evil. And it, yet at the same time, that's how the Bible depicts him. So when, when Paul shows up here in Ephesus, Ephesus at this time is one of the, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not sure I can put it in ranks, but it certainly would be one of the most evil, idolatrous cities in the Greco-Roman world. Absolutely, thoroughly devoted to the worship of Artemis, one of the goddess, uh, goddesses, sometimes she's called Diana. And, I mean, it's just a thoroughgoing abandonment to her. And so in this same context, you read something which at first sounds almost like it's magic. But you read, and God was doing extraordinary miracles, by, I'm in verse 11, by the way, extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Now, in the context of everything we've been studying in the book of Acts, these are the messianic miracles, that the apostles have the power to do that. And one of the results, verse 12, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. Now, you, you read that, oh, good night. That sounds almost a little bizarre. Even, even handkerchiefs or aprons that touch Paul? Now, setting aside the fantastic, which it is, just to understand what is really happening here. Evil spirits came out of them. Jesus is taking back Ephesus. And taking back Ephesus means people that come to know him will experience the release of the power of Satan. The evil spirits will leave. So, I mean, it's in, it's, this is the context for understanding this fantastic verse of verse 12. <clears throat> Paul is doing messianic miracles in a corrupt, idolatrous city, thoroughly dedicated to the worship of the goddess Artemis and many, many others. And here, Paul is doing these miracles in such an extraordinary fashion, and there's so much of a positive response that even, even aprons and handkerchiefs that touch his skin People are being healed and released from the bondage to Satan, as they believe. Then... Jim, is that a situation similar to what Isaiah's vision was of all the sin and stuff that was going on, and he compared it to Sodom and Gomorrah and... I think, well, I think so. Yeah, 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 I mean, I think so. Uh... Satan is not going to, Satan and his minions are not going to relinquish power easily. As they relinquish power, they're going to destroy and destroy and destroy. And then you see, as a part of that, you see something very deceptive going on. And it's these seven sons of Sceva, these Jewish exorcists. Verse 13, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists. Now let's work back. You know what an exor exorcist is? It's not that movie that was made back in the 70s. That's a legitimate practice, but it's where you're, in, you're intentionally casting out demons, demonic hosts. They're Jewish. There were Jewish exorcists at the time of Christ. And itinerant, what does itinerant mean? They're traveling around. They're moving around. So, I mean, it... Kind of, we don't know a lot about this kind of thing. Often they did this for money, although not always. But I mean, it's the, so they're Jewish, they're moving around, and their main mission is to cast out demons. So, which is really bizarre for us to think about. But they undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. Genuine. Or are they trying to manipulate? Well, I adjure you. This is one of the things they would say. I adjure you by the name of Jesus whom Paul proclaims. That's what they would say. Adjure you and I command you. Verse 14. 
seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. So you have these Jewish exorcists, then you have this seven sons of a Jewish high priest. We really don't know much about this, who this is. We, uh, who are they talking about? It can't be a Jewish high priest from Jerusalem. So, I mean, just a little fuzziness on exactly who this is. But his seven sons are doing this as well. Verse 15 is hilarious. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? I shouldn't yell like that. But So what what does that mean? Who are you? They are not doing this under the authority of Jesus Christ. They're doing this for self-serving ends. And so the evil spirit, I mean, it's almost like, almost it really is, the evil spirit is mocking them. The evil spirit is treating with derision what they're doing. I know Jesus. I know Paul, but who are you? I'm not coming out. I mean, it's, it's like, it's an in-your-face kind of, you have no authority over me. So the power of Jesus Christ is the only power on earth that will destroy the power of Satan. You can't manipulate that kind of power for your own personal gain and ends, as these guys were trying to do. So the result is, in effect, a reverse exorcism. So verse 16, And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, it's the man leaping on the seven sons of Sceva, mastered all of them, overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. So you have a reverse exorcism, and you have the humiliation of Jewish exorcists who are the sons of a Jewish high priest, embarrassed and humiliated by the power of God. This man has been freed from satanic power. He leaps on them, overpowers them, and they're humiliated and embarrassed for what they were trying to do. Jim. So my says, the man who had the spirit. So is that a past tense reference to the one who had it? It is the past tense reference to that's correct. No. Yeah, well, yeah, that's why ESV uh, tries to, uh, in whom was the evil, to clarify the man who was in, or who had been possessed by the evil spirit, now freed from the evil spirit, is, is leaping on them. It, 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 it's frustrating because we don't have enough of information here. It's, and this is, I, this is one of the thousands of questions I want to ask Luke. Why didn't you just give us another verse or two to explain a little bit? But it's just, um, it's, it's a humiliating defeat of these individuals who are trying to exploit the name of Jesus for their own personal ends. And they up, end up being humiliated and embarrassed. Can I ask you one other oh, please. Because in the preceding verse, <clears throat> verse 15. Right, for so one of the evil spirit answered him and said, Jesus, I know you, I don't know. So was the man speaking or the spirit of God speaking or the evil spirit? In verse 15? Yes. Well, I think the evil spirit is the one who is responding to the seven sons of Sceva. I'm still confused. So did the man still have a spirit? Is the evil spirit speaking in the man? You understand what I'm trying to ask here? Um, very clear. If it sounds like the spirit is speaking, either he's in the body of the man still, or he's been exercised and he's outside and he's threatening him, or it sounds like he's still possessed of that man. Okay. Like, yeah, okay. 
I think I, I think I understand your question. So let me. No, 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 no. That's fabulous. I, I mean, I don't want any cl- a lack of clarity here. If we go back to verse fifteen again, it's the evil spirit who's speaking, and in effect responding to the attempt by the seven sons of Peter to cast them out. I know Jesus. I know Paul. But I don't know you. Okay. Then, verse sixteen: the man in whom was the evil spirit. And so, what is unclear here, but I think probably this is right. I'm not sure the evil spirit has yet been totally cast out of this guy. So it is the man, the man in whom the evil spirit was speaking to the seven sons of Sceva in verse 15, leaps on the seven sons of Sceva and humiliates, embarrasses them, and they run out naked and all that stuff. And the uh, seven sons were exploiting Satan, and the spirit, oh. spirit reacted against them. Uh, yeah, and, and this, is what's, this is what is unclear to me. Is it a satanic, demonic power that is humiliating them, or is it God humiliating them through even the, 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 the man who had been possessed by the evil spirit? Well, see, I mean, that's, it's, it's, it's a little unclear. This is what I, I was, I'm frustrated that Luke didn't just explain a little more. So, but ultimately, ultimately, is it not often even the case that God will use an evil power to humiliate somebody? Do you remember Saul? Saul calls up the, 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 in a witchcraft kind of thing, and, um, and she then calls up Samuel, and Samuel rebukes Saul. I mean, so I mean, it's, that's a horrible thing. God doesn't approve that. But even though Saul had done that, that evil that results from going to see the witch of Endor, God uses the witch of Endor to bring Samuel back to rebuke, to rebuke Saul for what he's doing. So, I mean, I, I'm probably losing some of you there, I, and I don't mean to do that. But I mean, what I love this because you guys are really thinking. You, you guys were thinking and so you're trying to think through what is the Bible really telling us here, and it is what is unclear to me. And I've said it now this is a third time is is God is God using this situation to humiliate these Jewish boys who are trying to do exorcism for their own personal gain, or is it Satan humiliating them? The problem I have with Satan humiliating it's like Jesus said. Why would Satan plunder his own kingdom? Why would he do that? You following? But I can see great logic in God, even using this situation, which is so fantastic, to humiliate even those who are trying to use the name of the Lord for their own personal gain, which is what they were doing. Well, we've got about five questions here. I don't know who's first. So, Fred, I think you... Um, Satan doesn't have to use physical bodies to uh, tempt and interact and challenge other other humans on Earth. No, you mean uh, indwell and demon-possessed type? No, huh? no. He can act outside of... Of course. That's why I prefaced all this, because what he's doing is God is taking back Ephesus. He's invaded one of the, the great centers of idolatry in the Greco-Roman world, a thoroughly evil and thoroughly pagan city. And God's taken it back, one person at a time. As we go further, he made a lot of believers out of that mm-hmm. action. Mm-hmm. Verse 17 is a magnificent verse, absolutely. So it must have been mm-hmm. Jesus. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's just a... That's why, and I was glad Fred put it that way in the email, this is a magnificent example of spiritual warfare. It's the power of Satan against the power of God for the control of people's lives. 
And in this context, God has rescued quite a few people from the throes of Satan's kingdom of darkness. There's a number of people in Ephesus who are now freed. And as, as what he just said, when you read the next verse, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. This is a message that got out. What had just happened, it's told. And both Jews, look at the next, uh, both Jews, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. God is taking back this rebellious planet one person at a time. One city at a time. And it's the magnificent end game of this passage. That the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, is being extolled in a city that was dedicated to the worship of Barnabas. Now that's victory. The kingdom of God is coming to the kingdom of earth. Now, I mean, that's still going on today because the rebellion continues today. I mean, it hasn't been put down yet. But every, and this is what's so neat and, and what always gets me excited about the word of God and things like this, because when a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, Satan is just lost. And as that person continues to grow and be transformed, Satan is lost. Because that person will impact dozens and dozens of other people. And that you see what I'm saying? And that is what God is doing. That's what's happening in the missionary journeys of Paul. God is taking back pagan, idolatrous cities, one person at a time. And he's still doing it today. I mean, it still continues because God doesn't have any grandchildren. Every generation has to trust Christ. And those who don't, oh, I, I don't need to explain all that. But So, I mean, it's just it's so, so, so tremendous to see what is really going on here in Ephesus. Ed, you were... Well, I can see the people were probably confused on who to follow a little bit. And God made it clear. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus and Paul... And made fools of the others. They declared everything up. Absolutely. Who Absolutely. Has the authority. Absolutely. I mean, it's kind of unmistakable who's coming out on top in this situation. Yeah, Joel, you had your. Oh, I was. I mean, do we still see this kind of demon possession today? You get outside of the United States, yes, and in parts of the United States, it's the. Um, Wiccan cult is growing. I don't know if you ever heard of Wiccan witchcraft is growing um, in the United States. It has now been recognized by the United States Armed Forces as a legitimate spiritual expression. Wiccan. If you say I am a follower of Wiccan or whatever, uh, that means they, like all religious, they they need to honor that and it's certain things to give you the time off for that. It's now legitimately recognized. Now you get outside of you get outside of the United States and like uh, well extraordinary examples like Haiti or the Dominican Republic, or you get to uh, I mean uh, I'm doing a series in my church my electives on some of the worldviews and you start to study and, and see some of the things that goes on in Hinduism in the worship of many 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 gods. Joel, that is demonic. That is absolutely demonic. What is going on there? And I mean, uh, Satan has such a grip on those people, uh, and it's the same thing like in Haiti, the Dominican Republic, in, in the Caribbean. Uh, yeah, it's still very, very much. But you know, see, in our sophisticated, materialistic, affluent culture, Satan doesn't have to do that. He's got people already locked in to their addiction to all the things that make life for them good. I don't need God. I encourage you some. It's my son's favorite book of C.S. Lewis, but the Screw Tape Letters. If you've ever read that, but what Lewis does is an allegory. But what Lewis does there is he speculates. What's Satan's strategy? And he has a chief demon training a younger demon. I mean, it's all made up, but it taking things in the scripture, and he just says to this young guy, he says, "Look, what you need, the young demon, what you need to do is study, study the person you're assigned to." See where their weaknesses are, see where their flaws are, see where they're vulnerable. That's what you go after. 
And when you're with the Western affluent rich, you, you don't have to deal with all the supernatural, powerful stuff that we can do. They're already locked into our kingdom. Their total focus is off God. Their God is their money. Their God is their wealth. You don't have to worry about them. We got them. But then when you're with the, with the, the less developed areas where there's still a lot of spiritualism, then we want to do the fantastic to show we're greater. And it's just, that, that is definitely his strategy. And it's why today the gods of Western civilization aren't the demonic you know, manifestations still there, but the, it's, the, it's the materialistic gods that are all around us. That, that throw people off and give them that sense of security and safety that their wealth and affluences give them. I don't need God. Or I'll tip my hat at God on Christmas and on Easter, and that's okay. I'm being extremely cynical. But uh, Is New Orleans a, a, a serious problem in that area? Have a problem in that area? The what? New Orleans. Oh yeah, that's a New Orleans still for a lot of reasons that are rooted in history. Yeah, there's there's more of a active demonic practice and adherence than perhaps other parts of of North America. That's a good point. You get south of the border and and particularly into some of the some of the Latin American areas, uh, not not the large cities, but there's pretty pretty good widespread practice of a lot of satanic stuff. Verse 18. Also, many of those who are now believers, now that the operative word there is now, they have come to faith in Christ. Came confessing and divulging their practices. A number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver, assuming each piece was a Greek drachma, which was the measure of a day's wage. That's valued at $6 million today. So the word of the Lord continue to increase and prevail mightily. Satan lost big time in the city of Ephesus because of Paul's ministry. You see that? I mean, you see what happened? People who used to practice these fantastic, magical Sorcerer type of activities. Even the books, the, the Greco-Roman world, we have found them in, in archaeology. We have found these books and parchments about, about the magical arts that they practice. We know, we know what some of these would have looked like. And they come to faith in Jesus Christ, they abandon all that, and they confess it to Paul and the disciples, and they end up just destroying all the stuff that was associated with their old way of worship, demonic worship. That series of days in which Paul is doing this was a tremendous victory for Jesus Christ in the pagan, idolatrous city of Ephesus. God is taking back planet Earth, step by step, city by city, human by human. That's how you and I should look at this. It's a fantastic story of the triumph of God. But Satan's not going to lose. Satan's not going to give up. That's what the next paragraph's all about. But there's more questions. Um, what is our role? We sit in a room today. Outside of this room, we probably wouldn't have to walk. I'm not reflecting on First National, because it's a good thing. We wouldn't have to go 50 yards to find people who don't understand the plan of salvation, or that Christ died for them. What is, how do you see our role? You've been in ministry a long time. How do you see our role 
We may not be one of these chief disciples. Oh, yes. Right. None of us are. But we are in Christ. Mm-hmm. How do we take what we have to those who are headed to where Satan wants to take them because of our opulence? Well, I mean, it's, you know, you know the answer to the question already, but... I mean, it's it's twofold. It's both in our walk and our talk, we represent Jesus Christ and are always ready to, as Peter says, give an account of the hope that was in us. The active representatives of Christ, both in how we live and in our in our in our talk, our our, our speech, and when we have the opportunity to share the witness of Christ, to invite people to to come to know Christ. I mean, I. Don't how else to answer your question. It's that kind of an active, I like to call it, I used to tell my students, an active availability yeah. to the Lord. I'm not sure it necessitates, uh, you know, Fred, that you and I go out in the lobby here and start, you know, everybody that comes by. I, that's probably going to result in Joel's boss asking us to leave and we'll never be able to use this facility again. But I mean, it's it, but it's it's that kind of that active availability. Erwin McManus, in one of his books, calls, talks always about the divine appointments God has for you, and those divine appointments are the ones He sets. You you don't know who or when or what, but will always be available. Active availability. We should be seeking those, we? We should what? We should be seeking those instead of just maybe passively saying, "I'm open." Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, my my pastor, uh, the pastor of our church, uh, he's he's doing it this year too. Last year, he challenged every uh, every per- person in the church to ask the Lord for one. Sp- and this was in 2018. One specific person to talk to that person about Jesus Christ, invite them to the Savior, and so on. And then what he does once a month, he'll and people he doesn't single them out. Excuse me, they volunteer. But if, if if people have a story to tell of how they did that, and then he just takes a minute. We call it uh, we call it a uh, what's he call that? Um, oh, he has a name for it. I forget. But where he invites somebody uh, to come up and share about their their conversation with a person when they talk to them about Christ. And uh, and it's really, it's a neat, I like, I like what he's doing there. It's just challenging people. It's not in any way threatening. It's just comfortably asking the Lord to bring a person across your path to share the gospel. All right, now, um, did I get all the questions? All right, now, what follows, if, if, if we can put it this way, what follows is Satan's pushback now. He's not going to take this lightly. But it's going to be worked out in the affairs of the city of, of Ephesus. Now, after these events, what we've just been studying, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, As I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while in Ephesus. Now what Luke has just done, I don't don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but Luke has just summarized for us Paul's plans. This is what he wants to do. But we're still in Ephesus, and about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Now, we've seen that before, but the way is a very early name for the church. And it just it, it it's hahados in Greek. The way where did that get where did they get that? From Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. John fourteen six. So we don't know the origins of this. We don't know who started it. But this this movement of the early Christian church becomes known as the way. And so that's what Luke is just telling us. There's no little disturbance concerning the way. Let me explain it, he says. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis. Artemis is sometimes called Diana. She was the goddess of fertility, 
and the goddess of hunting animals. <laughs> you know, that you see, it's a weird combination, but that's what she was. And Ephesus was the center of the worship of Artemis. And I mean, you, I, we pointed out the map, and you know where Ephesus is, but it was right, it was a port city. It was called the Gateway to Asia. It was the major road that went deep into Asia then, which is the Roman province of Asia. And so this, this, this Artemis, this temple to Artemis, to Diana, uh, the temple that they built to her was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was an extraordinary temple. And it brought a lot of business. It brought a lot of people into the city. And so now this is what's going to happen. Civic pride is going to mix with idolatrous worship. And they're going to turn on Paul. So civic pride, because Artemis was identified with the city of Ephesus. And their religious idolatry are going to combine and make it very difficult for Paul. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, made silver shrines of Artemis. We have found in archaeology, we have found some of those. Whether he made them or not, but we found these little they're about this big. These little tiny trinkets, I would call them, made of silver dedicated to uh, Artemis. And when she's pictured in those, she's got about, about 18 or 19 breasts on her chest because she was the goddess of fertility. That's how she was depicted. It's gross. It's a horrible thing to see. And the, 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 it continues in verse 24. I brought no little business to the craftsmen. I mean, these guys are making a pile of money off of this. Verse 25, these, these he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, or you could translate that, we have our profit. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people. Here's Demetrius, head of this guild that has all these silversmiths that are making piles of money off these little trinkets of Artemis, saying, this guy Paul, he's impacting the whole province of Asia, and people come all the way to see Artemis and worship at the temple. Verse 27. In the middle of verse 26, look at this. And this Paul has persuaded and turned a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. In other words, idolatry is silly. That's not really the worship of the true God. Verse 27. And this is danger that not only this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. And that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Civic pride is combining with idolatrous worship to oppose Paul. Now I want to repeat again. This temple that he mentions in the middle of verse 27 this temple that was dedicated to Artemis set way up in the hill. It was four times larger than the Parthenon. Do you know what the Parthenon is in Athens? The Supreme Court building in the United States is modeled after the Parthenon. That was built in 1939, but they modeled it after the Parthenon. But this temple was four times larger than the Parthenon. It was one of the seven ones of the ancient world. So Demetrius, the head of the silversmith guild, is saying, Everything is at stake now. If we don't stop this Paul, he is not only threatening our business, but he's threatening our... And the chances are she's going to be deposed. What does that mean? As more and more people come to follow this Christ, they're no longer going to be following Artemis. I mean, this is, for these guys, serious business. Satan's pushing back. Because this is idolatrous worship 
and one of the promoters and beneficiaries financially of this idolatry is saying, we cannot let this continue. Now, they're going to take it now to the political powers of Ephesus. Okay, you with me? I'm hoping we can get through this. So we may not be able to because we've got the rest of the chapter, but let's keep going, all right? I guess another way of saying is don't ask any more questions. No, I don't mean that. We ask whatever you want to ask. When they heard this, they were enraged. Who's the they? The silversmiths, this guild. And we're crying, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater. I wish I had photographs of this. I wish I could take you now on a plane. We go over to Ephesus. That theater's still there. It's ruined, but the theater's still there. It seated 12,000 people. It was one of the largest theaters in the Greco-Roman world. That just shows you again how important Ephesus was. And so they, they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in the travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples, meaning the other disciples of the church of Ephesus, wouldn't let him. So they can't get Paul, but they're getting some of his followers and they take him into the theater. This is a riot. This is uncontrolled, spontaneous reaction. And crowds and crowds of people are now involved. Verse 31. And even some of the Asiarchs, these are high-ranking Roman officials in the province of Asia, who were friends of his, sent to him, who's the his? Paul. And sent to him and urging him not to venture into the theater. Verse 32. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. Most this is this is hilarious. Most of them did not know why they had come together. They just joined the joined the enthusiasm, joined the riot. They're not sure what's going on, but it's fun. Let's get, you know, something going on in the theater. Let's go find out what it is. I'm serious, that's what's going on. Verse 33. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander whom the Jews had put forward. Now, from everything that we'll see, this Alexander is not a proponent of Paul. Verse 34, But then they recognized that he was a Jew. For about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Whatever Alexander was going to say, they wouldn't let him say it. So, now listen. This is hard to picture with just the words that are described. But this is a massive theater that could have set, seated a maximum of 12,000 people. And a riot has ensued in the city. People are pouring into the theater. They're not quite sure what's going on, but it's enthusiasm and energy and excitement. And they're all screaming, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. When they try to settle them down, whether Alexander, who's a Jew, is trying to say something for Paul or against Paul, he doesn't have a chance to speak. Now, the one thing you know, Rome does not like disorder. Rome does not like chaos. So if this continues much longer, members of the Roman legion are going to come in. So that's why in verse 35, or yeah, verse 35, now when the town clerk had quieted the crowd. That, that is, this is a very, very difficult translation. Because town clerk, in the language we use, is somebody who's a bureaucrat and a paper pusher. You know, it doesn't time. But this is a very important official in the city government of Ephesus. He would have been a person that had major civic responsibilities, and he's kind of like a CAO of Ephesus. CAO, Chief Administrative Officer. So that's a really important official in the city government. He quiets the crowd and says, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis, and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. 
the sacred stone was a meteorite. And that meteorite was associated with the worship of Artemis, which is one of the reasons why, again, that temple was built and how important Ephesus was. So he's just now, look, all you people in this theater, you know how important Ephesus is to us. You know how important Artemis is to us. You know that the keeper of that sacred stone, all of that, that's why we have the temple. Verse 36, seeing that these things cannot be denied... This riot is about something that one guy is doing? Our city's still important. Goddess of Artemis is still here. The sacred stone is still here. They're not going to tear down the temple. Verse 37. You ought to be quiet. Do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. Stop this riot. There's a due process procedure the Roman Empire has set up. The courts are open. The proconsuls are here. If they have charges to bring against Gaius and Aristarchus, bring them. Stop the rioting. Continuing. But if you, verse 39, but if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. The word for assembly is ecclesia. The ecclesia of the Greco-Roman cities was all the citizens of the city would gather in the theater of the city to make the rules of the city. So the second thing the CAO says, the courts are open. If they have a violation of Roman law, bring it to the proconsuls. What I'm going to do is I'm going to make it an issue in the next meeting of the ecclesia, the assembly. Verse 40, and here's the big deal. For we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today. What's he talking about? Rome will not tolerate this much longer. Now that doesn't mean Rome way over on the other side of the Mediterranean, but he means the Roman military. The legion crushes these kinds of things. So if you don't knock it off, the Roman legions are going to be here. I'm really getting animated here. I'm sorry. Since there is no cause that we can justify this commotion. We can't justify this. This is a riot. And Rome doesn't like riots. If, if these, Demetrius and his buddies, have a legal charge according to Roman law, bring it to the proconsuls. I'm going to bring it up at the next meeting of the assembly. But knock off the riot. Because we are in danger of seeing the legions come. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Go home. And they all stopped off at Starbucks on the way home and had a delightful conversation. Yeah, and a, a few Reese's peanut butter cups there. Another example of this was the right time for Christian faith to be spread because the Romans created Absolutely. what they did. Good, really good comment. That's a great comment. This is part, the church is born during the period of Pax Romana, the great Roman peace, where there was stability and order in the Mediterranean world, enforced by the Roman legions. What a great way to spread the gospel. And they used the Roman roads, which were also built by Rome. That's why Paul says in Galatians 4, 4, in the fullness of time, God sent his son. Fullness of time. At the right time of human history, God sent his son. Perfect time for the gospel to spread. Under the auspices, not permission, because Rome didn't prove it, but under the auspices of the Roman Empire. The gospel spread like wildfire. And here, I mean, you just see, I mean, I just love this chapter for a lot of reasons. One, you just see the spiritual warfare 
you see Jesus through Paul taking back a rebellious city. And secondly, you have the response Satan pushes back through Demetrius. And then you see how God uses Roman law and Roman stability to counter the riot. It's amazing. And this didn't just all happen. Luke is recording this for us to see and understand. This is what the gospel is doing as it invades Satan's territory. And you think, just think about it for a moment. Who are the only people interested in ancient Ephesus today? Historians, archaeologists, and tourists. Nobody else. In Ephesus, they're not worshiping Artemis anymore. There isn't. The temple's in ruins. You can't find it. It's in ruins. But is Jesus still around? Amen. Is the church still around? Is Satan still experiencing defeat after defeat after defeat through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Yes. I mean, it's just, that's how you have to, you and I have to remember that. When Jesus was born, all eyes were on Rome, the great Caesar Augustus, in that tiny little backwater town of Bethlehem. You go to visit Rome today? What do you visit? Ruins. I mean, the Roman Forum is in ruins. I mean, they, you know, a few remnants of building, a few little pillars and some of the columns and some, but it's in ruins. But 2,000 years after that event, Jesus is now worshipped by several billion people on planet Earth. And Rome doesn't exist anymore. Rome's a great thing we study. Who's interested in the Roman Empire? Only historians, archaeologists, and tourists. Nobody else is interested. Because it doesn't exist. And I just, that's, you and I have to keep that long-run perspective. I don't mean to sound coy, but you and I are on the winning side. And each time somebody comes to Christ and begins to be transformed by Christ, Satan loses. And Jesus wins. Because Jesus is taking back this rebellious planet. One person at a time. And I know we don't get excited about biblical truth in this class, but that is an exciting truth for us. It's a really grasp hold of I'm so thankful we got through this chapter. I just was afraid we wouldn't because of your great questions. Any questions? See, what should the thought paper be for this week? From chapter 19 of the book of Acts, comment on the nature of spiritual warfare in A.D. 53 in the city of Ephesus. All right, thank you. I'm going to pray. Yeah, Joel, please. So, so is that uh, the end of the third journey that happens right now? Um, no, uh, we we have to go through some of the material in chapter chapter 20, but we're nearing the end of it. There are going to be a number of things that we'll want to try to do next week as we work our way through chapter 20. But we're getting pretty close. And then... Uh, the rest of the chapter will be, well, almost the rest of the chapter will be Paul's journey to Rome, and and and, um, and that's an incredible, very detailed account of that journey from Caesarea all the way to Rome and the shipwreck and all the stuff that happens there. But I, when we when we go through that material, one of the things I want to observe with you is you see the sovereignty of God at work, and you also see the incredible faith of Paul at work. I mean, all these sailors on this ship are terrified when this storm. And what does Paul say? Don't throw anything over and stop being afraid. Jesus told me last night we all will survive this. And Paul's eating, drinking his coffee and taking a nap when this massive storm, I'm exaggerating. These guys are terrified. And here's Paul saying, listen, the Lord told me we're all going to survive this. It's a great victory, again, of God's power, God's sovereignty, and when he sets out to accomplish things, you know, nothing is going to stop it. It's kind of neat. Now, you know, there's 28 chapters in the book of Acts, so we have eight more chapters, but we're going to have to start thinking about our next study. Now, again, it'll be five, six weeks till we're done with Acts, but 
So I have some ideas, but that's we'll talk about that. I'm going to pray. Uh, he's in my class. Uh, he's on my Tuesday in class. Saw him yesterday. He's halfway through his radiation treatment, doing very well. His hair's starting to grow back. Uh, he looks good. Uh, yeah, he really does. He's he's got some energy back. His wife is in the class too, and so I talked to him yesterday. They were telling me about we were studying the coming of the Civil War, and they were telling me about some of the things they visited. They had just been in Springfield, where Lincoln uh, his home is, where he's buried, and we we're talking about that. So he's doing well. His spirits are back. Uh, his energy seems to be back to a degree, but you know. So he's doing good. Lord, thank you for this tremendous chapter. Thank you for the men here. Thank you for their great questions, great interaction. Uh, this is a, a powerful chapter, one of the my favorite in the book of Acts. It's, it's the window into the spiritual warfare as Jesus is taking back a pagan, idolatrous, immoral city, and more and more people are coming to know Christ and that whole cult of Artemis is starting to die out. Today, we go to Ephesus and what we see are ruins. In archaeology, they dig up trinkets of Artemis. Nobody's worshiping her anymore, but they're worshiping Jesus. And that's what's happening throughout the world. The triumph of, of Jesus Christ in, in the final way re, uh, awaits his return when he announces the kingdom of God and banishes all his enemies. But until that uh, comes, that day comes, we're to be in the business of representing Christ. Help us to do that. Help us to be enthusiastic, energetic representatives of the truth of the gospel and that it and it alone transforms people's lives. We thank you for that grand truth that's touched each and every one of us. So we pray again as we try to close each class. Help us represent you well today in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. See you next week.